everybody. Welcome to Making It, a weekly podcast about how to build a great business, produced by Enterprise. Your 6am briefing on finance, business and economics in Egypt. This season is brought to you by CIB, the partner of choice for CEOs and leaders of businesses at all stages of their growth stories. And by the United States Agency for International Development, which has a 40-year history of inspiring Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. Your host today is Hashem, Enterprise's Executive Editor. Back when we could travel, a friend visited the Philippines. He went to a restaurant to try out a local dish. He couldn't understand the language and couldn't bother deciphering the whole menu, so he just stopped at the bees and went with a dish called balut. His waiter couldn't explain what it was because of the communications barrier, but hey, when in Rome. He tastes it, decent enough. He keeps eating. Hey, this is good. At some point later, he looks up what it is he ate and his stomach just drops. He just found out he ate fertilized duck eggs. Ignorance is bliss. Some things are better left unknown. Some industries are actually like that. You should never see how the sausage is made. One of these is the trucking industry. Because while we take it for granted that we are wearing, eating, and reading things that were all made someplace else, we rarely think about how these things got to us. We don't think of the network of roads and ports and shipping routes of the global supply chain that went into getting you your morning medium roast Brazilian coffee. And that's for good reason. Sometimes the most complex networks get even further complicated by murky middlemen and Dilbert-level bureaucracy. A process as old and unchanged as the horse and buggy and problems that have been there since the Industrial Revolution. Unless you had to, who would bother looking under the hood of that industry? Today's guest, Omar Hagras, and his co-founders, Pierre Saad and Ali Latrosh, took a peek and decided to do to the trucking industry what global unicorns have done to their respective businesses by founding Trella in 2018. Now, we get very weary by tech startups that go and claim they're changing the world. And frankly, it's their fault for playing that claim to death. So we were generally surprised when we found out about Trella. Their business model sounds like a beginning of a Silicon Valley success story. Through a teeny little app, you could take an archaic industry into the digital age and make it more efficient by doing away with the murky middlemen. Today, if you're a business owner, all you need to do to make sure your container arrives from the port to your warehouse or store is simply download the app and register with Trello. If you're still worried, you can track your truck in real time. You no longer need to make calls to brokers who then have to call and find an available truck and then go and find the driver for that truck. And for trucking companies, you save the downtime from your truck coming back empty and stuck in traffic for like 10 hours. Their story also follows that of an up-and-coming startup success. They were able to secure a $600,000 pre-seed round led by Algebra Ventures with just the pitch deck in 2019. They then graduated the Y Combinator Accelerator program and acquired their local rival Tructo to become the largest digital trucking marketplace in Egypt. They then launched operations in Saudi Arabia as a gateway to further expansion to the GCC. Any good VC will tell you it's often more about the teams you invest in than the project itself. Almar and his team are not new to this. Almar was an expansion manager at Uber Eats, while his co-founders came from tech backgrounds in companies like Visita and Olex. 
And even when you have all those ducks in order, there's still the matter of the right timing, which no one can control. The pandemic created a situation where Trella's app could act as a lifesaver to businesses facing decreased demand or supply chain disruptions, as well as truck drivers who could very well have been out of a job. In our last episode of Season 2, Omar takes us behind the service curtain and shows us how the proverbial sausage is made in the trucking industry and how Trella is cleaning that process up. He takes us through the startup checklist we just mentioned and walks us through the challenges he faced in every step. But more than anything, he makes the case for why Trella has the potential to be our first and long-awaited, drumroll please, unicorn. There, we said it. So Omar, thank you for joining us today. Our signature background question, what game or toy did you play that most influenced you today? So I, I used to do water polo. So I did water polo for more than uh, 15 years and I also compete in jiu-jitsu. So I think uh, sports has influenced me uh, a lot in my upbringing. That's so interesting. You compete in jiu-jitsu? Yeah, I compete quite often, actually. Uh, I just came back from the European Championship a couple of months ago. Oh, semi-pro or pro? No, I do pro. Wow. It's levels, though. So you have, you have from the very basic belt until the black belt. I'm in, I'm in the middle. Okay. Well, I mean, every CEO past a certain point always at some point in their lives try out martial arts. Like, what is it about martial arts and business leaders that kind of mesh? Uh, good question. I honestly don't have the answer. I can tell you what got me into jiu-jitsu. I think it's a very humbling sport. It's mainly a defensive sport. So people uh, are able to defend themselves at all time. And the very first time I, I, I tried this sport, I went into the gym, thought I was the strongest person out there. And then I got my ass whooped by a 15 years old kid. <laughs> That's always fun and, you know, great for the ego. Exactly. So they actually, they, there's a very uh, known saying for jiu-jitsu. It says, uh, leave your ego before the mat. So that's the, the norm of this game. It, it humbles you, grounds you. And I think that's one of the main things that got me into it. So walk us through your story, man. Tell us first of all about you and how the idea for Trella came up and the origins of the company. Before launching Trella, I used to work with Uber as a launch and expansion manager. So I was based out of London and my mandate was to uh, launch and expand Uber Eats across Europe, Middle East and Africa. And during one of those times, I actually got a very random phone call. I was in Saudi launching Uber Eats in Saudi and I got a phone call from a Spanish number. Um, he's like, I'm the CEO of uh, OnTruck. I was like, okay, what's OnTruck? He's like, we are a trucking marketplace. So we basically like Uber, but for trucks, we deliver things from point to point. We raised X million dollars of money. We were, and it is a proper startup. It's one of the best actually in Europe in that field. So it got me, uh, it got me intrigued. Uh, I started uh, looking at it. I met the, the founders a couple of times. I was actually going to join them and then I decided not to. Uh, and deep inside of me, I was like, I'm going to stay at Uber for a while. I like Uber. I like what I'm doing. Fast forward two months, it's still on top of my head. I keep thinking of it day and night. And then I was like, okay, I might as well just try it on my own. Yeah, you caught the bug. You got a good idea and like you can't let it go. Yeah, it's been sort of nagging on top of my head every every now and then. Uh, I flew back to Egypt, started doing my due diligence, uh, met some of the founders, 
because so so we basically also met the founders over a period of time. It was not something that happened all of a sudden. And then, yeah, I think we took the decision of, okay, let's work in the trucking space and let's launch something in the trucking space. And this is where things started picking up. So you, so you found founders who weren't Aslan in the trucking space and that kind of, and you steered it towards that? Yeah. So we mainly, most of us are mainly from tech backgrounds with very minimal logistics and trucking experience. Right. And, and where was it before? Where was the pivot? Or like what idea did you guys have before you guys shifted to trucking? Or did you find people who could build a trucking startup and you went from there? We wanted to build a trucking startup from the very beginning. We had a white paper to basically draw out all the opportunities here and all the opportunities there. And then we had a long one hour conversation with factual numbers with our findings with a white paper that each of us prepared and then we were like okay let's let's go for the first mile i remember very well ali's argument here was quite valid it's like this is the bigger problem this is the bigger industry this is where a lot of people are not able to solve it let's give it a try and i was like yeah fair enough let's let's give it a try nice uh, so can you just before we move on just briefly explain to our reader what is Trella and what it does. Sure. Uh, so Trella is a, a tech-enabled logistics company that delivers goods from one point to the end point. And our uh, sweet spot is the very first mile. So first mile is basically anything that is coming from the port to the warehouse or from the land to the warehouse or from... Uh, one warehouse to another warehouse, stuff like that. What was it about the trucking industry that needed disruption? I think facilitating the loadist itself is something that on its own is a breakthrough. Going to the carriers and telling them, hey guys, you can open this app and book any load you want across any uh, geofence in Egypt is unheard of. What they're used to do is they need to call a broker I kid you not, probably 20 or 30 times a day to make sure that they get one load. So, for example, I'm a truck driver. I'm going to Sokhna. I have a load going to Sokhna or I'm, I'm empty. I'm waiting for, to take a load from Sokhna. I have to call up 10 brokers. Every one of them, I call him anything from 5 to 20 times a day to make sure that I get one load. For us, we tell him, you don't have to call anyone. You don't even have to call us. You just open the app. You have a load board, you pick up your load, and then you're good to go. So that facilitates that whole process. Exactly. So that's on the carrier side. On the shipper side, it's a bit more tricky. Believe it or not, people are ready to ride Ubers and taxis and without insurance on their lives, but they won't be able to do the same for the, the, the goods they want to transport and ship with you. So the process here is a bit different. This business is three-dimensional. When I say three-dimensional is you have carriers on one side and then you have Trella in between and then you have the shippers on the other side. So shippers can be anything like from Coca-Cola, shipping lines, freight forwarders, agriculture businesses and all of that. And then carriers are just the truck drivers basically. And these are all three separate independent elements to the business? Yes. So there is no provider that you can just call from start to finish and get all of that. You have to kind of before you guys, I had to like find a broker that will kind of sort all of this out for me. Yeah. So if you are a shipper, you need to find actually more than just one broker because one broker would probably not be enough for, to sustain your supply chain. 
so you need a couple or three brokers and every one of them have a good list of 40 or 50 carriers under them. And that's basically how you operate your logistics. And it's very manual. So pen and paper and sheets. and That must have been so frustrating for customers. Uh, While what you were saying does sound frustrating, change doesn't come easy to industries this old. Like, so how difficult was it to get freight operators and customers to buy into your service? So I think we've been mainly focused on large corporates in the past year. We will be tackling small and medium businesses in the near future as well. But I think for now, it makes more sense for us to go to the big the big shippers and just you can name them. I mean, in, in the FMCGs, you have P&G, Henkel, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, all these big players out there. Uh, if you're talking about shipping lines, then you have all the big shipping lines. Same for freight forwarders, same for construction material and building materials and stuff like that. So in short, we, we're, we're literally knocking on the doors of the big shippers. We have a sales uh, pipeline in which we are following up and building across as we go. And it's very easy to get them on. All you need to do is just tell them what the company does and they're down for it. I wouldn't say very easy. They are suffering and you're trying to offer them a service that is unique and it's something that they, they're not used to. But because it's a, it's a big company in the end, the process of getting the approval is still a process. So it's not something that's going to happen over phone calls. Okay, let's get these guys on board and done. No, it's usually a process that takes two to four weeks to close one of the shippers. And I think once the shipper is closed, the retention is quite high. Who has your technology made irrelevant? Like who's out of a job because Trella now exists? I I don't want this to sound like a cliche answer, but Trella's main job is to facilitate the transaction, not put anyone aside. The, The people who can see this as a direct threat to them is probably the conventional brokers who are basically Trella, but very manual. But even those, we either work with them in Trella or we actually get them different uh, revenue streams by basically asking them to qualify new supply or new carriers and stuff like that. So we're actually making use of them as well. So it's not that we've placed anyone on hold. I think everyone is just making better use of the ecosystem. What did the landscape look like before you guys? Like, I just want to bring back that point because I don't think anyone really understands just how fragmented the market is. So give us an idea. It was pretty bad. It still is pretty bad. It's not that trailers here a year ago, so everything now is good. It's actually very hectic. Talk to anyone who works in supply chain. Talk to anyone who works in logistics and trucking. It's usually a nightmare. And it's it's a nightmare from all fronts. So it's not just that... It's very hectic to deal with a lot of trucking drivers and tell them to come pick up loads, or it's even hectic to collect your money from the shippers. It's also very manual, so things can fall across the line. You have 10 truck types and every truck type. So if you go to a cement, uh, cement factory, they require a flatbed. If you go to Coca-Cola, they require a flatbed as well. Go to the carrier, tell him to... Go to the Coca-Cola carrier, tell him to ask him to take a load from the cement factory. He's not going to take it. Same for the cement carrier. Ask him to take a a Coca-Cola load. They're not going to take it. So it's a huge industry. Think of it this way. Everything around you right now has probably been moved by truck. And the entire economy moves on logistics and supply chain. This is the core of our economy. How is the industry regulated? 
It's actually not. <laughs> it's oh, not very well, regulated. I mean, there are some regulations, but it's actually not. There's another regulated. variable. Yeah, it's not. It's not very regulated, and I think it's. Um, I don't see a lot of harm from deregulations right now. Okay. I think there are basic laws and rules that uh, carriers and shippers abide to. But you don't want more than that right now. Do so you, you see it as an advantage or a disadvantage that it's that lightly regulated right now? It has its own disadvantages, but we also see some advantages because we all also operate in, in Saudi where it's a more regulated market than in Egypt. It also has its pros and cons. Being in a regulated market makes things clearer, probably a little bit slower. Being in an unregulated market it makes you move a little bit faster, but with some ambiguity around. All right. I want to shift gears a little and I want to talk to Trello, the startup. All right. So you raised $600,000 pre-seed round led by Algebra Ventures, which, you know, for the initiated, that's pretty impressive. Explain to the uninitiated what these terms mean. So I think we were in a very unique position. We actually fundraised before launching. This is, this is what they call a pre-seed round. So we did our pre-seed round with, while we only had a pitch deck and myself and my co-founders. That was about it. So we, didn't, we literally didn't have anything when we fundraised. And I think you usually do this when the investors and the, the venture capitalists have faith in a specific group of people that they actually seed fund them for them to launch a business. So we did, we did the 600K just, I think, one month before launch. And then uh, we got into Y Combinator, which is an accelerator. So I think Y Combinator is pretty much more than just an accelerator now. It's probably the one of the strongest global VCs in the world. They help you, one, obviously scale and raise faster and you scale and, and you raise money from very significant investors who are either tied with Y Combinator or have seen the Y Combinator stamp and are keen to make an investment. This is post-launch? Yeah, so this was post-launch. This was six months into operations. We got into Y Combinator. We we actually fundraised. We did not announce the fundraising. and We will announce it at the right time, if you can put it this way. And you're going to give us the exclusive on that, of course, right? We can definitely give you the exclusive on that. <laughs> that, that great. Uh, so tell us about Y Combinator. Like, how did, how has that helped you? What is it? What did this accelerator do? And what should an accelerator do for a startup such as yourself? They help you build your business on, on an operational front, on sales front. And they also seed you with some funding and cash. And at the end of an accelerated program, you, you get a chance to pitch in front of a lot of investors. In our case, we pitched in front of 1,600 investors live, all of them in one place. So obviously, once you're done with your pitch, you go out and then you, you have some significant interest coming out there from some of the investors. And this is how we basically were lucky enough to raise the ground back then. We're doing another one now, and then we'll probably announce all at once. And this round that you're doing, this is what we would call in the biz a Series A? Yes. All right. What was the hardest part of that process for you guys? Uh, it's, a, it's an extremely stressful process, especially, I can if imagine, you, yeah. especially if one of two things. One, if you're running out of money and you need to raise money very fast, so you need to ask 
investors to sign the documents and wire the money. But at the same time, you don't want to show them that you are in dire need of the money because if you show them this, they probably squeeze you a little bit on valuations. Mm. That's that's the hectic part. The other hectic part is if you already have money, but you have a lot of offers. So you have this investor giving you a very good offer and then you find another investor giving you a better offer. And then a third investor giving you probably not as good as the first two offers, but he's the one who's the most strategic. He's the one who can help you scale. Choosing the right partner is probably the most hectic. How do you make that choice for Trella specifically? What did you look for when you were looking for an investor? It really depended on our stage back then. Back then, we wanted to expand into Saudi and the GCC. So we had preference to take money from Saudi folks and GCC folks. All right. I'm going to ask you to condense the pitch that you gave all those investors at Y Combinator to just shorten it to an elevator pitch. Give me your elevator pitch for Trello. Sure. We're discussing basically a $50 billion market just in Egypt and Saudi with zero tech involvement, with zero efficiency gains, with a lot, a lot, a lot of manual work and headache caused to both shippers and carriers. And then we're coming here in between trying to solve this. If we solve 10% of the riddle, 10% of the problem, we're tackling a massive, massive, massive opportunity here. And we're the first people to really bring in tech. So there are a lot of players out there, but we are the first. We can confidently say we're, we're the one who's investing most in, in our technology, in our processes. As I said, it's a mix of both tech and people. And hopefully this, is, uh, this will get us some cash in. Well, I was going to ask you, how receptive were the investors to that message? I mean, we know you guys got $600,000. Um, I think they were pretty receptive. I think they were also receptive given the fact that they've invested before a product has been built. They're betting on a team. And we were proud enough to say that we have probably one of the strongest teams in the region. So the investors saw that in the team and basically bet on the team. Just to simplify it, it's if investors see a strong team and a big problem to solve, they're probably going to invest. Right. And was this a bidding war situation? Did Were they trying their best to woo you and stuff? <laughs> yeah, we were in, a, in this lucky position where we had a bunch of people trying to get to fund us and we ended up with just a few that we chose. How involved are your investors in the company? So it really depends on how you want to build your relationships with, in, with your investors. For us, it's, it's different. We don't want investors to get into our day-to-day operations, but we, we love our investors to help us with our strategy and our long-term vision. But day-to-day is probably not their thing. Thinking with you on on how to build the next unicorn is probably what you want them to do. If you have an investor who's not thinking out loud with you, then you probably have the wrong investor. Right. So answer something for us here. We've heard that many startups kind of suffer from a lack of commitment by the investor when it comes to sort of the funding parts of it, you know, wishy-washy payments, they'll sign an agreement, but not, you know, deposit the money for the company soon enough. Uh, Commitments sometimes waver before the seed capital even gets to the company. Are you aware of this happening in Egypt in general? It may not necessarily happen to you, but is this what you're seeing from the VC world? Yeah, it happens sometimes. I wouldn't say the VC world. I would say 
a handful of VCs have built this reputation. If you were a startup that got burned by an investor who promised you something, what advice do you have for them? Talk to many investors. Get right. more than one term sheet. Don't settle with one, with just one offer. Get as many offers as you can and then be in a place where you, you can... So you negotiate from a position of strength. Exactly. And to do that, sell at all time. So sell at lunch, at dinners, drinks, whatever, anytime. You Always be networking, huh? Yeah, sell, 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 sell your product every time. Doesn't that get exhausting? Well, no one said building a startup is not exhausting, man. <laughs> All right, I think now's a good time for a quick break to thank our friends who helped make the show possible. Making It is brought to you in association with USAID. For 40 years, the American people through USAID have invested over $30 billion to inspire Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. I want to go back to the business itself. Give us an idea of what growth looks like for the company. I think growth is mainly a, a function of top line. I think this is mainly what growth is. More carriers on board that can serve more shippers and more demand coming in. This is growth. I think bottom line is more on the efficiency. And these are the efficiencies that you're trying to gain as you build your company. So you want to scale very fast, but at the same time, you want to make sure that you're spending every penny in the right direction. And this is not always the case because there's, a, again, you learn a lot plus growing your company. But at some point, this is how you build a mature company. So what number or metric on your dashboard do you look at every day to check on the health of the business? Those days, I'm looking very closely at our uh, receivables and at our bottom line. Collection and receivables is every day. We're looking to enhance our operational expenses pretty much every day now. We're looking to increase our uh, adoption rates pretty much every day. Um, what did competition look like when you were starting out? Was there anyone else doing this or were you guys like the first in Egypt? No, we're actually, we're actually, we're not the first. There, there were two players out there before we come, one of which we actually merged businesses with. You do not want to compete in a market that you don't have competition. Right. Explain that. It's, you, you won't be motivated to build a better version of your product or actually you will be motivated, but just slower. If you have competition, you'll run. You'll run. Every day you'll run. You want to build a better product. You want to build a better experience. You want people to adopt your app, not their app. And for you to do this, you have to keep a very close eye to competition. You have to build things. You have to be creative. Right. Uh, well, since we're on competition, so the UAE's trucker recently stepped into your home turf of Egypt. So I assume from what you're saying, that's not a concern for you? No, so two things. One, we we stepped into Saudi before he comes to Egypt, so we're giving him a hard time in Saudi, and we're happy to we're happy we're doing that. Nice. <laughs> Second thing is on that very example. The reason once we knew that they are coming to Egypt, we launched all ports in ten days. Literally, we've been operational in every single port in Egypt in ten days. This is the beauty of competition. That's what I'm I'm telling you. All right, we become a better version of ourselves. Um, and we welcome them. We we want them to bring this, and we think this is better for us. And I'm, I'm pretty much I'm pretty sure that's the same. We in Saudi are probably pushing them as well to build a better product for themselves and their clients. I want to talk about your expansion to Saudi. Actually, at one point, because it sounds to me that you kind of had already planned 
right from the get-go that you were going to expand there. I was going to ask you at one point, did you feel that you've grown enough in Egypt before expanding or should that have, did that not even factor into your planning? No, that's, I think that's a great question. I, so there's a bunch of things. We're building this company in a very decentralized manner. So we have our growth team, which is basically our launch and expansion team. Those are pretty much individual contributor. You send them to one country, tell them, hey guys, launch. They're expected to launch in three months. So what we've done is that we've built our launch team in our launch in Saudi. And going forward, launches are just going to be faster and more efficient and more convenient. Because Saudi was our first launch, definitely not our last, hopefully. But then it's, it's a work in progress. We will continue launching a lot and we will be aggressive with our expansion. Uh, and for us to do this, you need a group of very, very sharp people and very, very strong people in execution. Why Saudi over other countries in the MENA? Probably you countries where there is less competition. If we say that we are a MENA player, you, then you cannot ignore Egypt and Saudi. Those are the two largest economies out there. And then another thing, given our business, is that Saudi is basically your gateway to the GCC. And a lot of cross-border transactions happen between Saudi and UAE, Saudi and Kuwait, Saudi and, and Jordan, so like just name it. Most of the cross-border transactions happen through, through KSA. So just purely by geography, Saudi just connects you to everywhere around. Exactly. So Saudi made a lot of sense. All right. Can I ask you, where is it easier to scale up? Saudi is, is an easier launch because Egypt, we screwed up a lot. We made a lot of mistakes at the beginning that we're not making in Saudi. And, and our third launch is probably going to be even easier than Saudi because you start putting your hands and learning. We document everything. We, we playbook every single step in this company to make sure that we're on top of it. So we know that you guys, you guys announced in December that you acquired Tructo. That was the merger you were talking about earlier, correct? Yeah. Why did you choose it? Is it adding something to your operations or was this just purely let's eliminate a rival? No. So we actually explicitly had this merger because they managed to understand the market very, very, very well. They've been there for a couple of years before us. They've been instrumental for our scale, to put it this way. And we have the scaling up the business, the product, the tech. In, in our opinion, was probably one of the best moves that we've so done. So it's just a sensible marriage. Yes. Do you think that the space now is then in the consolidation phase? I would say a, a year down the line, you will see a lot of consolidation happening. 2021. Aren't we starting that now or did that kind of get put on pause because of the whole COVID thing? No, I think end of next year, you will see a lot of logistics and trucking consolidation happening. All right. What's next then for Trello as far as business steps? Can you reveal anything? Are you guys looking at more acquisitions, looking for a geographic expansion, looking to sign up more customers? What's your goal for these next few years? I would say we're definitely looking into geographical expansion and we're also looking into horizontal expansion. So we're looking into other products to launch within Trella Umbrella, if you can put it this way. And it rhymes too. You should use that. <laughs> Those are the two main things that we're looking at. In parallel to this, we're cleaning our balance sheet. We're trying to have a very clean receivables, uh, receivable stream. We're trying to have 
a lower OPEX uh, in terms of gaining more efficiencies, building building a, a stronger product that can help us scale across multiple countries and geographies. I think those those are really our focus right now. Scale the business and, and scale it efficiently. All right. Now we want to talk about the dreaded C word. How has your business changed since COVID-19? Good question. So we've, we've actually been quite active uh, communicating how we've been adapting to the COVID-19 in our blog. We've seen a lot of emphasis from our shippers and our carriers to adopt the app. Why is that? So, for example, on the, on the carrier side, they've been hit a lot because they've been dealing with brokers and brokers are dealing with factories and a lot of those factories are shut down. So they, they've been out there with not sufficient work. And now they have an app that they can log into the app and get loads. So we've seen a proper hike in that front. Give us a number. Massively grew our carrier base in the past couple of months. Like I, the number would probably not be, we'll not do, we'll not do this justice. I was Percent wise than, before COVID. I was just going to say that we grew our adoption rate by more than 50%. That's a 50, five, zero? Five zero, but I think it's actually more. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean now th- that's what that's what happened in times of crisis. Yeah, everyone are trying to come out with solutions, and the solution at that point was Trella. So they s- kept logging in. The comments are quite flowing in our app, in our back end. Then you see people, oh, I want to take this load because because you give them an option to comment on the loads that they pick. Right. So. I want to take this load. No, I want to take this load. No, I want to take this load. And then you see a lot of people trying to get the same load, which shows you, okay, this is a good load. So we, we can price it differently. And these are like things that we started noticing. And on you the- charge by load, correct? Exactly. Yes. Well, everything we've been hearing is that the economy kind of shut down stood to a standstill. I mean, is trucking so essential? Like that's just not going to get cut. Do you, have you not seen a drop in usage because of that? No, I think we've seen cyclical demand. I mean, March during like the the hype of this entire thing, March has been our best month ever since we launched. And then, so you definitely would agree that lockdown has been encouraging more business owners and to go digital. Hundred percent. Even our shippers, they started accepting electronic invoices, electronic PODs, and and proof of deliveries, uh, pushing for cashless transactions. We, we see this. It's, it's, it's visible. Uh, have customers been paying you regularly on time? No. <laughs> uh, and what have you been doing to kind of get them to like shake those trees? Um, I think it's, it's a matter of restrictions and not the, it not being very easy for people to, you don't have anyone in the office here. Like literally you go to accounting and to an accountant in the factory and, and no one is there. And the guy is like, no one is here. Just bear with me, please. And we'll figure this out. I think that's really what, what the main issue for us to do this is that we started pushing for electronic payments, cashless and digital payments as well, and proof of deliveries for these payments. It's getting to a much better position now. And I think the reason why people have not been paying is because it's probably very new to them and they're still not used to it, but it's changing. So you don't anticipate that to be a major problem for you guys during the crisis? Hopefully not. You're, the nature of your company kind of gives you a unique insight under the hood of the economy and the supply chain in general. What other sectors 
are not doing well right now under COVID based purely on what you're seeing from your customers and what sectors are doing well? What sectors aren't doing well? Mm. So I think construction, building materials, those are those are things that have hit pretty much rock bottom. Uh, there were uh, they just things shut down for them, if you can put it this way. Uh, those are the ones as well that we work with. We've seen a significant drop in demand with with those shippers. On the good side of the of the problem, it's funny how everything has a good and bad side. But like, don't feel guilty. You're a business owner. Food commodities. FMCG companies, agro businesses, those those businesses have seen have seen some good months. I would put it this way. Yeah, the essentials are are moving ahead, huh? Yeah, very so, very good month. So then, let me ask you this: Before COVID, what sector or industry would you say was your biggest earner, and what is it now? Before COVID, I think uh, I would say construction was quite uh, solid for us. Mm-hmm. Post-COVID uh, agriculture. <laughs> nice. Um, what other major changes in supply chain trends have you seen since COVID-19? Yeah, I think the way supply chain companies, whether it's warehousing, whether it's trucking, whether it's demand planning, the way have shifted to be much faster and adaptable to the situation has been quite impressive. So, for example, you are a manufacturer in in 6th of October, you depend on a lot of raw materials coming in from China. All of a sudden, exports and imports coming in from in and out of China has been put on pause. So this is obviously not a very nice situation for how, how you manage your business, how people navigate through and move from, okay, China to X. This has been quite fast. You've seen planning has been much faster. Execution has been much faster because you also probably you have very limited time to get a lot of things done. So you're just under a lot of pressure. I want to talk about you guys as a startup on the make. Um, do you see Trella becoming a unicorn? Yes. That was easy. No hesitation. Allah. Brave words. Allah, let's hope it works out. Um, many startups who are considered unicorns sacrifice profitability for expansion and have gotten investors to buy into that for such a long time. But when you look at the IPOs of Uber, Lyft, and like to a much worse case, WeWork, investors aren't really buying into that anymore. Are you in favor of this growth model? Should investors have to pump in an insane amount of money before they see a return? I think the, the the crisis has put everyone into test, if you can put it this way. We are, it's it's no longer the growth at all costs. It's not the same now. If you're growing, but you're subsidizing the loads, not a single investor will put money in you now. This could have flown two or three years ago, but not now. So you're showing, I assume then you're showing your investor returns? At least you're showing them improvement. Again, like the the part of being a venture investor is that you take risks. So you don't want to see returns. You're not a private equity. You don't want to see returns now, but you want to see improvement. This is the change, basically. At some point, they used to give you money and be like, okay, grow, 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 grow. Because you can grow. It's easy. It really is easy to grow if you have a lot of money, a lot of cash in the bank. But it's not easy to grow and improve your OPEX and improve your 
uh, bottom line, it's not easy. That's the tricky part. That's what a lot of startups did not do, including us. I'm not. I'm not saying we were any different. Have you I'm changed up now? Have you kind of slowed down and you know made sure the money kept up with the pace of growth? I wouldn't say I slowed down. I'm continuing growing, but I'm focused very. That's why when you ask me what are the things you look at every day, I tell you collection and my OPEX. Right. Like those are the two things I look at every day now. I, I want to make sure that we're collecting our money. I want to make sure that we're spending our money wisely. Okay. Uh, the number of unicorns outside of Silicon Valley is very small. Uh, the Middle East, that number is even worse. Why is that? That's a good question. I mean, it's it's also a bit unfair to compare this to unicorns coming out of Silicon Valley. But here's an argument. If you look at India, not too long ago, just five years ago, okay, we're going to support SMEs. We're going to support tech startups to be very specific. And then fast forward, they have more than 30, 30 unicorns right now. Do you think government support is the is the crux? I wouldn't say we're dying for government support. But if you have a crisis like this, probably the best entity to help you is the government, not not the VCs, not the investors. I mean, alhamdulillah, we, again, we are in the good side of the, the crisis, so we haven't seen this, but I've also seen some startups suffering a lot. And I think the startup ecosystem in Egypt is, is booming. People have started to understand how significant and important an app can, can, can be and how things will move and how things can scale. It's a matter of time because what, where Silicon Valley was 20 years ago is probably where we are right now. And it's just a matter of time for things to pick up. Right. You're looking to be that unicorn? Yeah. That opens the floodgates? One day, one day. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you want to comment or maybe suggest a guest, send us an email at makingit@enterprise.press. That's makingit@enterprise.press. Making It is produced by Enterprise, your morning briefing on business, finance, and economics in Egypt. Subscribe today for free at enterprise.press. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. Did you love today's episode? Like us or give us a five-star rating and a review to help others discover us. This season is brought to you by CIB and by the United States Agency for International Development, And that's how we're making it.